Welcome to the Vision of Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Ted McElroy. This podcast is dedicated to helping you find your wins, have a better quality of life, and become the best leader you can be. Hey, have you subscribed to this podcast yet? Don't miss an episode. They're worth every single thing you paid for them, which is nothing because they're free. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast by hitting the subscribe button. Give us a rating and a review on your specific podcast player. This helps us with our podcast rankings and makes it easier for people to find us. And as always, please support those who help support us. On episode 102 of this podcast, Chris interviewed Justin Kwan, Michelle Andrews, and Richard Ruth. They pointed out that as a profession, we have done a great job of letting our patients know that myopia is not a big deal. If you can see 2020, there is no worry. It is the high myopes that are more danger. And as they said, that message is tragic. Any myopia has a higher risk of maculopathy, glaucoma, and earlier cataract development. In the MySight One Day clinical trials, only 4% of study participants who got ProClear One Days stayed stable in their myopia progression over the three-year period. That means you can confidently say, parent, by not going to a system geared to slow the myopia progression, there is a 96% chance your child's vision will get worse. This may take away some of the choice your child has in the future as to how they will correct their vision. Choice, not fear of the disease associations with myopia, is what best resonates with parents when it comes to myopia control for their children. And with Cooper Vision's MySight One Day, we now have an FDA-approved single-use contact lens to lessen the progression of myopia in our patients. Contact your Cooper Vision representative to find out more about MySight One Day contact lenses. Welcome to the Vision of Leadership podcast. I'm Ted McElroy, and today I have a wonderful guest with me, uh, Julie Helmus. She is the owner and leader of Helmus Optometry in Davis, California. They're a five-doctor practice, been there for quite a while. In fact, she's a, it's a legacy practice, and uh, it's just outside of Sacramento in Davis, California. And um, she's got a fantastic story, and I can't wait for you guys to hear it. So, Julie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ted. Glad to be here. So you have had quite the circuitous route when it took to getting to where you are today. As a matter of fact, you started in optometry fairly early, one would say. So tell me a little bit about how, how that took place. Yeah, so my claim to fame is that both of my optometrist, both of my parents are optometrists. So I'm a second gen OD and I used to think that was, you know, really special until I met a fifth generation OD down in San Diego. So I have been humbled many times over in this position. But yeah, mom and dad both retired now and uh, they started Helmus Optometry back in 1986. And so around the age of eight, I was actually, you know, W2 and uh, that was when we had paper charts and I did a lot of filing and we did, uh, you know, those old those postcards, those recall postcards. I was the one in the back stamping oh, yeah. those and addressing those. And I think by the time I was 11, I was calling patients to notify them that their glasses were ready. I was homeschooled for a year. I, you know, I had a lot of different uh, education opportunities growing up, private school, public school, Spanish immersion, homeschool, um, on and on. And uh, when, the year I was homeschooled, I would sit in the back, uh, you know, the break room, which was like four feet by seven feet, you know, tucked in across from the bathrooms. And I would eat peanut butter out of the jar and I would uh, read my math book and mom and dad would check on me between patients. 
And, uh, you know, I remember reading Island of the Dolphins and all of that jazz. So I've, I've always liked, you know, my alone time, even though most people would, would call me an extrovert. But that was a fun year. You know, really, I was living in the practice with them. Um, I even skipped a grade of math because I was just alone, me, the math book, and peanut butter. And, uh, yeah, so that's a little bit about uh, me growing up, working in the practice since the age of eight. I've, I've done about everything there is to do in the practice, although, you know, as it's evolved, um, I won't pretend to know how to be an optician anymore or to how to do billing. So the, the practice has evolved. But, you know, I've, I've got a good team, and so I've been able to delegate those skills. And, and I try to focus on what I'm good at and, and really hire the rest. So as you got started, you, um, optometry wasn't your first choice coming out of high school, going into college and looking at what you were planning on doing. In fact, um, you spent a good deal of your time, which I'm kind of jealous of and only because I just got started so late in life, but your, your command of the Spanish language, uh, you did immersion, uh, education in where did that start in your education portion? Was that more college? Was that more high school? How, how did that work out? And did that, lead you down a direction in college for a while that you thought that was the direction you were going to go in life. Exactly. Yeah. So Davis is a cool little town, you know, we're a college town here and starting in kindergarten, I attended Spanish immersion. That was, you know, I'm grateful every day for my parents for their foresight. So my brother and I, we both went to Spanish immersion. That's kindergarten through sixth grade. Everything was taught in Spanish and, you know, growing up, you know, friends and, neighbors would all ask me, oh, are you going to become an optometrist? And it was a definitive no, absolutely not. You know, I went off to school and I, I pursued um, global studies, international relations with an emphasis on uh, Central America and um, socioeconomics in that region and studied abroad in Costa Rica. That's That really helped my Spanish as well. I actually, you know, studied mostly French, though, in high school and, and college. But studying abroad really helped solidify my Spanish. Um, and then the cool thing now is that uh, both my kids are in Spanish immersion. So it's one of the reasons we're really committed to Davis is because of the school system. And my son, who's in first grade, he is he's wary of, of reading English because, you know, the, the words are so weird and, you know, it's not as, yeah. it's not phonetic. And so he's just remarkable in Spanish. And we even speak a fair bit of Spanish around the house. I and mean, he just, uh, even at first grade, he understands everything. And it's been fun as a mom to kind of reintroduce Spanish into, into our lives here on a daily basis. But yeah, for a while I was, um, I worked for a nonprofit right out of college and I was really into microfinance. I worked for freedom from hunger and it was a, a remarkable experience. You know, we traveled to Bolivia and DC and we, we focused predominantly on women and um, small microfinance loans and really seeing them as the source of, of kind of growth within their community and, you know, just not just within their family, but as women being the key to stabilizing their communities. So that was a great experience. And then, you know, at that point I realized I didn't really want to, you know, sit in front of a computer my whole life. And so I, I uh, went back into healthcare, and sometimes I'll even joke around with my patients in the exam room now. It's like, I need to ignore you for a second and take some notes. Um, so I'm going to stare at my computer. If you would just give me a second, I'll, you know, we'll make some eye contact in a moment. But, you know, I definitely try to uh, 
focus on the individual, and I like that aspect of healthcare. So, yeah, after working for the nonprofit, I worked as a writer for a little bit. I mean, I tried a whole bunch of different things. I was a nanny. I was even a gardener. I worked in restaurants. I had a lot of different experiences um, before I circled back to healthcare. And so at that point, it was either, well, do I go to PA school because I was 26 or do I go to optometry school? So started, you know, went back to school, did my, did, you know, as a post, um, post-baccalaureate and did all my prereqs. And, you know, that's when I really started looking at mom and dad and their quality of life and evaluating, you know, our life growing up in my childhood. And I thought, golly, that's a pretty good gig. And so optometry school or bust, that was my plan. Graduated when I was 30. I was one of the, not the oldest, but one of the older ones in my optometry class at Pacific. And I remember dad saying, you know, he, I think the greatest adventures in life are really undertaken with complete naivety because I remember him saying, oh, optometry school is going to be easy, which is the same thing he said about parenting, right? And man, was he wrong about both. But here I am, got the credit through through school, got my two boys, they're five and seven, and every day is an adventure. The adventure is true, and I wouldn't necessarily, I mean, I don't know, hard, challenging, um, you know, sometimes we we start putting in words, you know, I think it's the a good kind of hard, it's, it's a good kind of challenge um, for the most part. I mean, there's always that day, but, you know, for the most part, it's the payoff that you get at the end that really makes it worthwhile to go through the struggles and the all those other things. Wouldn't you agree? Completely worthwhile. Yeah. I mean, in hindsight now, eight years out of school, it feels like a distant memory and it feels like a blur. And I know when you're in the thick of it, when you have seven classes and three labs and practicals and, you know, at at Pacific, we were, they were a great school. You know, we learned everything on the foropters, the top con foropters and the manual foropters. You know, I get these associates and they've, they've, they've never seen anything other than a manual foropter. So you know, as an employer of associates, you do reflect on the quality of your education. And I'm tremendously grateful for Pacific in, in all aspects. But, you know, school, it, compared to being a parent and a practice owner, like it was easy. You know, it's it was a time when I could dictate when I exercised, when I went to bed largely. You know, you don't get that luxury as a practice owner and a parent. Um, and I, I, I liken it to being like a selfish period of my life. I mean, I was investing entirely in my own education. And, you know, I was, I was fit, but you know, your, your, your world isn't balanced, right? I mean, you're not, your school is so all consuming and it's that ever elusive balance. And at this point I've just thrown that out the door. I mean, I used to be such a planner and, and in, in optometry school, you know, you really, your success is, is dictated by your ability to plan and, and kind of budget your time and prioritize. Um, but now it's like, I, I actually love it because I feel more zen. It's like I can't, I'm more in the present because the present is, um, it's pretty, it can be pretty overwhelming. But, you know, I got to say I, I'm never bored and I, I feel very much alive. You know, there have been times where I've thought, well, maybe something's missing. And then, you know, I'll reevaluate the practice and I'll look into, well, let's let's look into Avalux, these migraine glasses, or let's get Regenerize and really kind of, like crank up our dry eye game or, you know, let's, I mean, right now we're, we're, it's the busy season, it's December. So we're looking at how we can give back to the community. So this morning I'm like, well, let's give, 
let's throw in 80 dry eye relief masks to the teachers' baskets, you know, for their holiday baskets. So, you know, coordinating with the school. Like, I mean, every day there's, I just love that, that every day it's like there's a new oyster, you know, there's, there's something and you, you can't predict it. So uh, I am no longer a planner. You know, people ask me, what's your five-year goal? I'm like, <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing next weekend, <laughs> you know? Well, this is kind of a, a taking me a little bit out of my comfort zone because I have gone completely in the opposite direction of you. I used to be not a planner. Now I'm like a Uber planner of things, mm-hmm. you know, and part of it is just because of having to maintain my role as CEO of the practice and being a practicing optometrist at the same time and making sure that I'm giving an equal amount of focus on my guest care, this, what I'll refer to as our patients as I am to the practice care, you know, and taking care of that practice. And so how do you, um, how do you balance this part of your, of your life? I mean, you know, the, the challenge of being a CEO, a practicing optometrist and, you know, and, and something else too, that's seeing more and more in the practices, uh, the practice of optometry is becoming more and more female focused. So how do you see that balance taking place and what are the struggles that you find on a daily basis when that happens? Well, that's a lot there, Ted. So first of all, you know, CEO versus OD, those are two very different roles and they require different skill sets. They require different support teams, right? Um, I think being an optometrist, you know, and I still see patients, not as much. So, you know, this time of year, I see maybe patients three days a week. Um, but I, I've largely removed myself and replaced myself as a clinician by hiring associates. So, uh, but I still love patients. I've always loved patient care. I think that's one of my strengths. Uh, you know, again, I'm only eight years out, but the key to that is not doing too much, right? So you do too much of anything, you're going to get burned out. You're going to get jaded. You know, you're going to feel that crunch of, of repetition. Although I maintain, you know, our practice is very well balanced pediatrics to geriatrics. You know, we've got a big contact lens base. So we have, you know, co-management. We have a very, my days are very diverse as a clinician. So I, I have not, you know, I see these posts online, you know, people eager to get out of the profession. I have never felt that pull. But I, the times I don't like patient care are when there are these larger overarching needs of the organization, of the business. And I don't like being divided because I want to be focused and present with my patient. I don't want to be thinking about, you know, the the remodel or the equipment delivery or just these larger practice, you know, and if you stay in a practice, you know, the, the kind of the life cycle of a, of a CEO OD, you're going to eventually either outgrow your space or need to remodel your space. So that's, you know, a theme that we all go through. And so we did a big remodel last year. And I was, of course, seeing a ton of patients to try to, we paid for that out of cash. So I was really cranking it, you know, every 20 minutes, still, you know, juggling young children as well. And that was hard. So at the beginning of the year, the way I balanced that was I told my front desk, I said, I'm taking a sabbatical. You can use that term. It coincided with the fact that I had been practicing for seven years. You know, we are an academic town. Again, University of California, Davis has about 35,000 students and they're just a block away. So, you know, so many of our patients are affiliated with the university. And so using that academic term sabbatical resonated with them. And so they, you know, I heard the front desk every day, 
Dr. Julie's on a sabbatical. She'll be gone for five months, but I, you know, I can happily schedule you with our next available provider, which is Dr. So-and-so who has an opening in the next three days. Let's get you in. So, you know, working on those talking points, but really I needed to step away, you know, emerging from the pandemic, which, you know, hammered all of us in, in so many different ways, um, whether, you know, you own a practice or not, whether you're in healthcare or not. Right. And then, you know, 2021 jumping into our remodel. So we went from uh, three lanes to six lanes. I added a special testing room and just, you know, modernized the practice. My wow. parents had built the building. It was 14 years old. So it was, it, it needed a, a freshener. So after that, I was like, I'm, I'm taking a break. And it's not like I sat on a beach. I still went to the practice every single day. I was working five days a week. I was just focusing on systems and focusing on my team. And, you know, I had, I went to Pilates and I picked my kids up early. So it was nice having that flexibility. So balance, I don't know, Ted, that's, that's a, that's a hot button word. Um, I think that's a, 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 something to be tackled on a daily basis. Right. Uh, you're, you're, you're more of a planner now. So what is your advice on that subject? One of the things I think that's really important for me, at least, is having some rituals that I have on a daily basis. I mean, I know exactly what time I'm getting up every single morning. I know exactly what time I'm going to bed because if I don't go to bed at the right time, then I'm not getting up the next day, which means I don't get my workouts in. I don't, you know, have a chance to take care of myself, which uh, I ignored for a lot of my practice life, uh, didn't eat right, didn't exercise like I should have. And, you know, now it's harder, um, being 55 years old to, to, you know, be in good shape. And I'm actually probably in the best shape of my life right now, which is kind of scary because I could have been here 15, 20 years ago. But, you know, taking some rituals and, and actually spending some time to write down exactly how long it takes me to do every single thing I do each morning and knowing that if I'm not, you know, making my smoothie at seven o'clock, then I'm not walking out the door at seven thirty, which means I'm late at the office. And having that kind of, of, it sounds crazy, but it's given me a lot of freedom because I'm not having to think about what I'm having to do every morning anymore. Uh, everything's set up ahead of time. I'm not burning calories thinking about, well, what am I going to wear today? Or what am I going to, you know, it's all sort of laid out ahead of time. And that has really freed up a lot of my life for me to do focus on other things that I need to be focusing on as opposed to just the mundane little, you know, silly things like, again, what am I going to wear today? Um, so that's helped out a ton. And I mean, what are you doing right now that to protect the time that you have as a CEO and the time that you're sort of divesting yourself out of uh, practice care as far as seeing your guests and mm -hmm. such? Before I dive into that question, you, you know, your tidbits, those are good pointers, right? Um, kind of streamlining or automating your own personal processes. And also you reference time trials, which I want to do in my, my clinic. So everything you're saying, I resonate with professionally and I've applied to my business. Uh, whether I've applied them to my person is different. So, you know, I, I love the inspiration, Ted. I I'm, uh, I'm want to get like, you know, President Obama, where he wore the same thing every day. And in fact, I have the same two pairs of dance clothes. I have the same pairs of pants because you really do get decision fatigue, right? Like you, you mm. want to just automate everything and, and save your kind of cognitive power for higher order decisions. 
but you know, I'll come home at some days and my husband will be like, well, do you want, you know, spaghetti with meatballs or tacos? And I'm like, I cannot make one more decision. Just whatever you serve me, I will happily eat. <laughs> the right. poor guy. Yeah. And I, I think like, we all I'm get into that. I'm you know? maxed up. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like that. Not quite to the same level that uh, President Obama was, but I do have basically the same thing I wear every single day. I wear the same type of pants, but I'm at least alternating from khaki to a blackish or a navy every other day. And all my um, shirts that go with the blue pants and or, I mean, the khaki pants are on the top shelf and all the stuff that are on the, you know, go the black pants are on the bottom shelf and everything else is just sort of laid out. So I don't have to, I just grab the first pair and put them on, you know, so that's, I'm not thinking Perfect. about it. Uh, I yeah, got to have but, a little bit of variety. Yeah, I like it. Spice of life. We'll get back to your question. How do you protect time? Well, really, it's making the conscious decision to, to step out of the lane, right? And and to to train your staff to communicate that. And at this point, you know, there are months when I only see two two days of patient care, right? So coming back when we emerge from the busy season, you know, looking forward to the spring, I don't have any patient care, you know, open presently associates take vacation, I will cover for them. And I'm always available to step in when someone's sick. And, you know, with COVID, you know, two weeks ago, I had to step in because we had a provider who got COVID, right? And so having that redundancy, which you want in your front desk, you want in your techs, you want in your opticians, you know, how many of us have that in our doctor team? So I represent that redundancy. But really protecting my time, it involves limiting my patient care and recognizing that that's not the most valuable use of my time. You know, seeing patients, and especially in California, where we take a lot of insurance plans, you know, it's it's a numbers game. And I, I'm all about insurance plans because, you know, I recognize where I am, my kind of geographic um, opportunities, some would say limitations, but people of insurance are employed. Right. And so you that's a that's a different subject for another podcast. But anyway, just protecting my time, you know, and it's it's my support network too. like really drawing on family. My husband, who's predominantly a stay at home dad now, um, which is awesome. And and just asking for help and empowering your leaders, getting out of their way, you know, trusting them letting go a little bit of control, which is an ongoing struggle. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that, that hits it on the head. I mean, recognizing that if someone else does it and they do it like 90% as well as you, heaven forbid, maybe 80% as well as you, like that's okay, right? The job got done. Focus on those outcomes. So I think I'm going to be dealing with these issues of balance and control for, for lifelong. I would actually argue that many of the things that your team is doing 80% or 90% as well as you would do it is actually better than you doing it. Actually, no, I have been watching that. Yeah, because it frees you up to do the things that only you can do. And that's the thing that I think we all get guilty of as optometrists. We we think, well, I got to do it all. You know, it's 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 if it's going to get done, then I'm going to do it. And that's what's shackling a lot of our our colleagues from really scaling their businesses into something that's going to be truly meaningful, not just for them, but even their team, because they're going to be able to give more back to that team. Completely. Yeah. When you really start to look into scale, you have to recognize your own limitations as one human that, you know, most of us are juggling a family who still needs sleep and nutrition and like your modeling exercise, 
I used to be an athlete growing up um, and in college. And, you know, that is one aspect of my life I, I'd like to devote more attention to. You know, that's where podcasts have entered my, my life predominantly is I go on these long walks or I'll go on a run and I'm listening to all these, all these great podcasts. I mean, Dr. Fishbane and Adam Schmela and you and Chris Wolf. And there's so many great podcasts to choose from. And when I meet you guys in person, you know, I feel like I know you, you've been in my ear for <laughs> hundreds of miles. So I guess now it's my turn. Yeah. And it's, it's a lot of fun. I can't speak for all of us, but I can speak for Chris a little bit because he has said this. It's a lot of fun and, and Adam as well doing these things because we get a chance to share some really great ideas with some really incredible people. But the other thing that's nice about it is we're sharing it with everybody else as well. Now, whether everybody mm-hmm. else takes advantage of it or not, it's a different story and that's okay. I'm, I'm really cool with all that. But just for me, ideas are really important to be shared. They're really not any good unless they get shared and implemented somewhere else. If I'm, if I'm the only one using that idea, it's just kind of okay. But if I take that idea and give it to somebody else and they take it and maybe even make some iterations on it and make it a little bit better and then share that back with me. Now I've really got something that's impressive. So uh, that's, that's kind of what I really love about podcasting I love about sitting around in a group of people and just sharing ideas and talking about it it's it's really exciting for me in fact I would love it if someone would pay me enough to walk away from all the other stuff just to sit down and do this it would be it would be so much fun for me Uh, but this this for the moment this still becomes a wonderful wonderful hobby and I really truly enjoy it so um, you know that's where I'm spending part of my time as you're looking at your time, and I want to get a little bit more back into uh, making sure that we're putting the right people in the right places, how do you decide what you're going to delegate, how you're going to delegate it, what are the steps that you go through a delegation process with your team? Everything that I'm not good at, I delegate, right? So recognizing that my training is in optometry. And so, you know, when I when I took over the practice, you know, my mom was still doing the bookkeeping and I tried it for a year and I was like, no, no. I mean, it was fun, right? Don't get me wrong. We all love numbers as, as practice owners and, you know, optometrists as well. But uh, so, you know, delegating bookkeeping, uh, you know, recognizing that there are phenomenal people in, in terms of marketing. Um, yes. Really, I, I've tried to delegate almost everything except, you know, the high order decisions like, you know, and, and the directions. I'm, this is actually the first year I'm not writing holiday cards to every single staff. We have 28 full-time staff. I used to write them all, and now I'm going to give them to the team leads. You know, you write them for your team. Here's the, the holiday gift card. Throw it in the card. I'm, I'm delegating as much as I possibly can. It is, it is fun to watch other people soar. And, you know, they want more responsibility. If you, if, if you want good people to stick by you, they want growth right? The, the right people, yeah. they want growth, they want more responsibility, they want more ownership. And so you got to get out of their way. So I'm going to try to leave this summer and go up to our place in Washington and see how the practice does. And uh, I'll report back. I'm a little nervous. And I'm always I can always just, it's a two hour flight back. Um, but I mean, I'm good at seeing patients, I'm good at building a team and supporting a team. Um, I, you know, I think, you know, you touched on what it's like to be a woman um, in, I'm very decisive. And so I've gotten comfortable with making decisions, even if I don't have 100% of the information, recognizing that I have enough information to proceed. 
And if this decision backfires, we will unwind it, right? So let's put in place this policy and let's you know reconvene in a month and get some patient feedback, get some feedback from our team leads. And so I, I'm decisive and I can build a team. I love seeing patients, but you know, again, right now I, it's about, you wanna scale your message, Ted. Um, I wanna scale kind of the Helmus optometry business model and uh, I'm looking beyond just our one one location. So that's that's where my energy needs to be focused. I want to get a little bit into your disappearing from the practice for a period. What? How long are you planning on doing that? Uh, I think it's great that you're actually going, you know, at least two hours away. So it's not like you can just turn around and come back. And you have to go through a lot of steps really even to make that two hours take place. But so how long are you going to be gone for and is this something that you are trying to build into as a schedule that you'll do on a yearly basis further and further along the practice? Yeah. So growing up as the daughter of two optometrists and for most of my parents' professional life, they were the only doctors providing care. So they, we took a lot of weekend trips. You know, my dad was really into backpacking. My parents owned a whitewater rafting company and California is such a great playground. So we explored, you know, up and down, left and right. Well, I guess North, South, East, West, <laughs> superior, inferior, temple nasal. No. Anyway, so we, uh, we did a lot of exploration, but my parents never took more than a week off until I was in college and they came and visited me while I was studying abroad. I studied abroad in Europe as well as Costa Rica. I studied abroad twice. Um, I would have done a third time. I wanted to go to Africa, but you know, I graduated in three years, so I didn't have time. But anyway, when I finally, when they came and visited me in Europe, that was the first time they took off more than a week together and they had to find coverage, right? They found temporary coverage to, you know, provide patient care while they were gone. And I looked at that model and I was like, Oh no, for a while, I thought, well, I'll go into academia, I'll go into teaching so that I can have the summers off. So this has been like the running joke with me and my parents. They don't think it's possible. Right. And so I almost want to do it just to prove them, <laughs> prove them wrong. But uh, I'm going to try to be gone for three months. I'm sending my husband and my two children and our overweight retriever in the minivan to drive up to Washington. Um, and I'm going to join them and I plan on flying back as needed. So, you know, the, the children, they're young. And so this is kind of a new concept for them. We haven't done it yet. This will be the new, su the, the first summer. And I've already announced it to my doctors and my, and my leadership team. So they've got plenty of notice and I already see them kind of changing their thinking because they're like, well, I want to be equipped to take this on because you're not going to be here this summer. I'm like, absolutely. Let's sit down and make sure you feel comfortable. And you know, it's always just a zoom call away, right? Like it's not like yeah. off the grid. I'm going to have fantastic internet service. I'll check in. I'll probably, you know, I check the bank account every day, you know, check the staff schedule, you know, all the things you do, check your email when you, as a business owner, the seven things you do on autopilot right before you even see your first patient, right. Or have your first meeting. So I will still be connected. Um, but yeah, I, I'm excited. I'm committed to it. A summer away. The kids are not coming back uh, this whole summer. They threw a little bit of a fit actually just this weekend because we're, you know, with children, I would say they're like some staff. They're not exactly um, very receptive to change. So you want to prep them in advance. And right. so, oh, did I lose you, Ted? Are you still there? No, no, we're still here. 
All right, good. I, I lost your, your handsome face. But anyway, so um, the kids are like, well, I don't ever want to leave this house. I'm like, well, this is your school year house, and we're going to go and we're going to try out this summer house, and we'll see how it goes. So that's the game plan, really, you know, stepping away and trusting the team and trusting the systems you've put in place. I'm excited. Yeah, this this is going to be um, probably more along the lines of the sabbatical that you may have envisioned when you did it before, you know, but you were still kind of plugged into the practice. So it's not like you were really gone. You were still there. You just weren't seeing guests. This will be a really nice way for you to acid test if the processes and the systems that you put in place are really going to work. And I'm, I'm really mm-hmm. excited for you. I did this for the first time. I didn't do for three months. I've, I've, so far I've built up to a, about a month at this point. Um, but I've, I did this for the first time a few years ago where I was gone for two solid weeks straight, you know, it said, don't call me. Don't, you know, unless the office burns down or someone dies in the practice, do not call me. I don't want to know, you know, and they did a great job. I had everything planned out as to here's what you do. If this happens, if this happens, if that happens. And it was a really nice system. And then the following year I added another week and then I've got it up to a month now and it's, it's gone really well and it's made me feel good because as I've gone through this process, I saw, well, that didn't work out quite as well as I thought it was. So what we got to do to fix that, to make it work better. And we tweak things along the way to where we've got it running. And the nice thing for me is now I can look at my associate who I'm trying to turn into my partner and say, it doesn't rely on me and the value when I get ready to, for her to ink that contract is she's not buying a practice that has a key man or a key person that's attached to the practice. It's actually a really nice running machine that I could literally walk away from if she, if she decided that's how we needed to go and she could just have it all. And I mean, I'm not ready to do that. And I don't think she is either because I enjoy the business side of it a lot more than she enjoys the business side of it. But at the same time, just to have something that you know that runs really smoothly, it's, gosh, it just feels so good to have that happening. Congratulations on that accomplishment, for sure. I'm going to need to pick your brain offline about that um, as well. I like the way you did it as a stepwise approach as well. I guess I'm more of a rip the Band-Aid off type of girl. But, but yeah, I mean, I, don't it, think that's wrong. It, I think it increases your practice value right? It increases your practice value if, if the practice isn't reliant on the shoulders of one individual. And it's about communicating that to your staff too, saying like Helmus Optometry is bigger than just the Helmus family, right? It's its own entity separate from me, separate from the legacy my parents have built. When, when you just, when you took over from your parents, I want to, I want to talk about this really quickly. When you took over from your parents, Mm -hmm what kind of changes did you have to put in place? Um, because I presume you also inherited a good bit of the team and probably a lot of them are still there. So what kind of things did you put into place that were maybe rubbed them a little raw at the beginning? Uh, some of the things that you said, well, that worked out. I thought it was going to work out better. What kind of things did you have to, and because I've got a son right now that's in the halfway through a second year in optometry school. His plan is to one day possibly return back as well. And he's kind of in the same boat you're in. And uh, the difference with him is he'll be, if he decides to come back, he'll be going in with Julia as opposed to, well, and, and me. But so what kind of things did you put into place that become became great? What kind of things were a little bit more of a challenge for the team? Let's tell me a little bit about that. Well, this is a really big subject. So when I came on, I was 30. 
Um, before I joined, uh, I, I was also pregnant, got pregnant in my last year of optometry school with our first son. And so I was, I did not rock the boat at all in terms of practice flow, really for about three, four years. I was a good little worker bee. I was focused on, you know, gaining my clinical confidence. And I was also, you know, overwhelmed with being a first time parent. Right. And, you know, our firstborn was, you know, it, that was, that, that's a whole different subject, but it was a challenging um, introduction for me and my husband. And so really three years, I just clocked in and clocked out. I didn't take on many, hardly any duties outside of clinical care. My parents were, we had another fantastic associate. She was great, like me, um, young female, um, young children. And my parents were part-time, so they were really stepping away. And they had delegated the in, almost the entirety of business operations to their partner. So when I joined as a partner, there were four of us. My parents, myself, and this fourth guy who, you know, after about three years, I realized this is just not a good fit. And I actually hooked up with IDOC and Nathan Hayes was, was pretty instrumental in guiding me through what I called the business divorce. And yeah. so I, um, yeah, again, it's a whole subject. I actually did a lecture at Vision Expo um, East and West called Private Practice Horror Stories, which outlines my mm -hmm. fourth, fifth and sixth year as private practice owner. Because, you know, once my parents retired and I um, excused this fourth business partner for ca with cause, um, I was felt very much alone. And the, the practice felt like it felt brand new. And over a three year time span, we had a 100% staff turnover. So you wow. say, you know, yeah, it was a lot. And it was a very rocky start, but I've come a long way. And again, I've delegated. I asked for help. IDOC was great. I moved on from them and I was involved with Kleinman Performance Partners and they were instrumental to my growth and my systems and developing a team. So I'm all about, you know, finding uh, some kind of consultant. Again, focus on what you're good at, hire the rest, get out of your way. And so I've, I've, I'm now involved with uh, more with Perk and OptiPort, um, Vision Source. I know Ted, you're involved with another great avenue. So find whatever is the right fit for you at your own practice stage, your own stage within the journey of being an owner, and lean on that advice. And you know, I'd have colleagues, you know, private practice owners from other states, and I'd question, you know, why are you here at this at this event or this this gathering because you're not receptive to advice. You know, some people will come in with this defensive mindset. And for me at those early years, it was like, well, everything's a disaster and I need to redo everything. And I don't, so I'm all ears. <laughs> and so I, and I feel like wise, it really has become a brand new practice. How wise of yeah. you to realize, you know, that you need to have some advice from somebody else. I mean, cause a lot of times when we're, especially when we're younger, almost, I think it's even harder for us to admit that I don't know everything and uh, to, to step in there and, and say, so what would you do in this circumstance and, and really take that advice and play it in. I mean, that's probably one of the reasons why you're so much farther along in your career right now than I was when I was in, at your point. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm just an efficiency Nazi. And so I don't see it as efficient in reinventing the wheel. I'll look at a broken system and think, well, there's hundreds of practice owners. Uh, you know, even look to your ophthalmology colleagues who are doing this and making it work. What are they doing? And so you look at, you know, four or five best practices and you apply the one that best fits, right? I mean, in every avenue, you know, capture rate, marketing, I mean, people are doing these things. There's professionals and they're doing them well. So don't feel like, you know, between patient care, you need to invent an entire marketing plan for the year. You know, you can outsource that totally. I mean, find someone within yeah. your team or hook up with one of these consulting groups and pick the brains of other optometrists. I mean, having like, there was, there was a period there where I felt really isolated. I felt like the practice had grown beyond what my parents, you know, how, how they really could support me, especially since they had let go of some of the control. And this, you know, in, in terms of IT, that was never their strength. Things have really evolved. So, you know, getting hooked up with our, our phone system and the new server and, and all of that jazz, like they were not equipped to help. You know, and all of these contact lens ordering platforms like CLX and Marlowe, like they, they, they didn't grow up with that. Right. They're like, Julie, you're on your own. Right. And so just I, I just didn't want to invent the wheel. Mm -mm. Very smart. Very smart. You know, I, and the nice thing about having or lazy. these things is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, I've become. Well, no, I wouldn't say it's lazy. I think it's just in, it's very wise knowing where my strengths are and where my weaknesses are and trying to backfill my weaknesses with somebody who that is their strength. You know, mm -hmm. um, you talked about yeah. IT a minute ago. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've been sucked in the rabbit hole of, well, you know, Dr. McElroy, the, the server didn't back up last night. Well, you know, can call Bill. Yeah, but you don't understand the server didn't back call Bill. Because if I do it, I may maybe per hour cost less than he does to do it, but it's going to take me four hours to fix it. Where it's going to only take him one, so I'm going to cost four times as much probably for him to do it, for him me to do it mm -hmm. as for him to do it. Not to mention that I'm not doing the thing that I'm best at. So now I've no. just become the most expensive IT specialist on the planet. Absolutely. I think there's value in being ignorant. I don't do, I don't mess with anything in IT. I have a great team. I don't worry about it. I haven't worried about it in three years. It is handled and we have a 0.1% failure rate. I even invest in two internet providers. We have Comcast and AT&T because my motto is no down days. And that is absolutely not my strength. I need to get out of the way. A lot of times I'll just, if there's some kind of crisis, oh, the Optos is down, or you know, this patient is complaining about XYZ. I feel like I'll just inject more chaos into the situation. You know, let my ops director handle it. Let my optical director handle it. You know, I'll just be, I'm more emotional and I want everything, you know, I want this practice to, again, represent the legacy. And so I got to just step away and, and they'll do a better job than me. But I did want to talk about efficiency because it brought up um, this, in, this, this experience I had when I went, I mentioned my parents, they owned a company for many, many years. That was kind of their first foray into business ownership. And we went to, uh, we rafted the Grand Canyon, which is, uh, you know, as we didn't hire a company, we did it ourselves, right in July. And so the temperatures were as high as 116 degrees. And I remember my husband, uh, his Chaco sandals melted. It was that hot. And so here you are, you're in the wilderness, it's me and my family. 16 days, talk about off the grid, right? 
Um, And the motto there was because of the heat and because there was so much to do to make sure the entire group got down that section of the river safely. The motto really was work smart, not hard. Right? You almost have to, you, it, like there's a safety factor there. And so it's, you know, we, lo- I mean, every business owner loves that motto, right? But it's, it's, it's like seared into my soul from that Colorado, that Arizona heat, right? Um, so, whew, yeah, work smart, not hard as a, as a business owner. I think we've really touched a lot on this theme of delegation and, and time management. I did want to get to, um, you asked me earlier in the talk about being a woman. Ted, can we mm-hmm. dive into that a little bit? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, my, you know, all the practices in my region, um, most of them that have been around for a long time that I'm starting to take a closer look into as I'm, you know, striving for more of a regional presence there, you know, many of them are owned by people like my dad, you know, kind of people like you, Ted, older, not that, not saying 55 is old, but uh, older white men. And we're obviously seeing those demographics shift in, you know, these incoming class, these outgoing classes. So uh, that's a whole beautiful subject, being, being a woman in this industry. I see it very much as a strength. And I don't want to get into, you know, gender um, stereotypes necessarily, but just speaking personally and the other women that I've been striving to connect with. So every time I go on a conference, um, I try to, you know, make one meaningful connection with a, a female practice owner. And I can go back, you know, the vision expos and my time with Kleinman, et cetera, and, you know, really say, really pick out one woman. And, you know, and we're still in contact, whether it's email and I file, you know, our correspondence away under pen pals. So they're my pen pals. And I, I love it when these women practice owners come up to me after I've given a lecture and I always want to exchange emails, exchange phone numbers. Ideally, we exchange drinks, you know, that night. But it is really a strength. We have, um, I feel like I've often been underestimated, you know, negotiating with vendors, making business decisions. And, you know, and I've, I use that as a strength and having the emotional intelligence again, which is often a strength of women, but I've seen men like my husband, like my operations director who have tremendous emotional capacity. But that is a strength when it comes to connecting with and leading a team. And of course, as an owner, you have to be able to multitask. And that is, I'm not necessarily a proponent of that because I've been in the mindset where you can get really scattered and frazzled and, 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 And then your decision-making abilities, you know, you go down, maybe, you you know, you're too impulsive, too hasty, whatnot. But draw upon, you know, kind of these natural strengths that that I have as a woman and trying to help other women identify these strengths as well and nurture them. And I think a piece that a lot of women are, are missing, though, is that decisive factor. And so really being just trusting yourself. And this, this takes time and, you know, having that confidence. And again, I have a great support network between my parents, my husband, my leadership team. So I'm, I'm not afraid to take risks because I have a soft landing and I'm completely willing to reroute. Like if you're going to try something, recognize that it fails and move on. Like that's a fantastic lesson, but especially in the domain of ownership, I think a lot of women are afraid to take on business ownership alone and my kind of personal mission is to help them 
is to be that voice. Like you can do this alone because you can delegate because you can pay people, right? You don't need a partner. And I see so many women, they'll take on male partners. And I came, this is just one experience, but I had a very negative experience with a male partner, right? And I had to get a lawyer. I lawyered up and I divorced him. It was very much a business divorce, very much, you know. Um, so don't be afraid to do this alone, right? You have authority, you have decision-making power, and it's good to do things that scare you. And at the end of the day, you, you feel alive. So I guess I've circled back down around to control a little bit <laughs> inadvertently, Ted. <laughs> but who are some of these mentors and mentees that you've um, worked with around, or, and, and shared ideas with? And what kind of lessons did they teach you? So most of my mentors reflecting now have actually been male within the profession of optometry, you know, older men. Again, I think that's just a function of demographics. But my mentees, you know, we're I collect them from the, their Kleinman partners, you know, they're they're within the Kleinman network, they're or they're within Vision Source. I've met them in Vegas, you know, met them in New York. Um, Perk is a great network nationwide as well. So, you know, connecting with Perk members. I mean, just at any basically any CE event, even if it's on Zoom, you know, you can you can kind of identify these like minded women and be like, oh, I'm going to write her name down. I'm going to look into her practice and also, you know, check out, you know, there's so many great publications <laughs> growing up. I was like, mom and dad, how, how, are, how is there an entire magazine about optometry? And now we've got, you know, dozens, right? We've got multiple right. just practice management. And so reaching out to those authors. Reaching out to those authors, they all, you know, and, and I'm one of them, right? Send me an email and I'll, I'll send people emails. That was a great article. Um, I'm going to try to implement this. You know, I've got this problem. How is that working with you? Um, you know, do you have any insight? So one thing I've, I've noticed is, you know, people are tend to be a little bit, you know, not everyone is as gregarious as I am. Um, so it's, you know, about getting vulnerable first. So I'll be like, hey, I'm a practice owner. I have five associates. I have 28 staff. You know, we've got six lanes. We're single, super single. We're about 3.5 million. You know, tell me a little bit about your practice. So by volunteering some information, like here are my cliff notes. What are your cliff notes? You know, well, how fast are you seeing patients? You know, I've done 30 minutes. I've done 20 minutes. So people don't feel so afraid. Like, whoa, why, why is she interrogating me? What does she want? It's like, I want to share. I want to dialogue. This is like equal footing here. I have something to learn from you. You probably have something to learn from me. Let's go back to not reinventing the wheel and let's be buddies. And by the way, what are you doing tonight? You know, because I love food and drink. (laughs) That was not the light. Yeah. Did that answer your question? Yeah, Yeah, it did actually. And, you know, so um, with, you talked about, um, taking these barriers down and making sure they understand, you know, by diet, by engaging them with your thoughts first. So you're not just peppering them with questions. Are you still finding some people are quite reluctant to engage in this kind of situation or, or, or does it take a little chipping away first to, to get them to start sharing? I do think optometrists in general are tend to be more reserved and introverted. Okay. I do. I see the business owners as being a little bit more outgoing because they're, you know, leaders, even if it's on a small scale, right? They've led team meetings. They've had hard, Mm -hmm. hard conversations with staff. They've fired people. They've hired people. They've interviewed people. There's more, you you know, the more you do that, 
uh, the more confidence you build in having those those talks. So it just depends on, you know, whether they're an owner or an associate, right? Or, you know, what what stage they are in in the career. But I do think in general, our profession, there's a bunch of introverts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that's uh, just part of the nature of what we are. We're historically, we're technicians at heart. I mean, I hate, don't take mm-hmm. that the wrong way, docs. It's, it's not that you're a, you know, it's, it's a, it's the fact that we're all about doing technical things over and over again. And uh, that's part of that. It, we, when it came to business owners, a lot of times, if, for those of you who've read the book E-Myth by Michael Gerber, you've, you've heard him you know, talk about basically we had an entrepreneurial seizure. It was kind of like, um, all of a sudden, I thought, well, I can do this better, you know, than that guy that I'm working for or that lady I'm working for. So I'm just going to start my own business. And what you start to realize is you got the worst boss in the world and it's you because you don't put in systems and you don't put in processes and, and you don't allow people to do what they're really strong and really good at. Um, you know, so that's, that's part of the process. But the other thing is trying to dig in with other people that aren't in your business as you were saying, Julia, I think that's that's very wise, and and um, you know, it plus it just expands your your uh, ability to learn more because you're engaging people. Sometimes, sometimes engaging people who someone else might not have even engaged just because of who they are or what their thought processes are. And I think that's another wise thing you're doing. Uh, what kind of that's what I love what about kind of being truly... a practice owner is that we're really always learning. And I actually want right. to give a plug to the field of dermatology, cosmetic dermatology. I have recently connected with um, a dermatologist who, who practices like two blocks down. And she has this huge, in, remarkable practice. And she's got four kids, you know, and, and she's an MD. And just learning her best practices from her especially in in the realm of marketing. And, you know, I I single out cosmetic dermatology because there's no insurance plans involved and they're getting these largely women, which is my, my kind of focus, my, my target audience, if you you would say, where they're, they're shelling out thousands of dollars for procedures, you know, every three months. Right. I mean, where, where where's eye care failing? There's so much to glean from those from those other industries. But yeah, as long as I'm still learning, I'm still going to be doing this. Learning and having fun. I'm not saying every day is fun, but I'm still learning how to promote and protect my practice and I'm I'm enjoying it. And and recommending it. Very good. So do you feel right now that your life is too busy or not busy enough? <laughs> not busy enough. Oh my god, never. Um, so I personally am working on trying to slow down, but I, I mean, I still sleep well every night. I'd really strive for at least eight hours, especially in the winter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's probably too busy, Ted. If you ask me, you know, out of 365 days this year, how many days felt too busy? It would probably tip the scales a little bit over 50%, but I mean, I'm still doing this because it's manageable and I, maybe I'm, I'm still naive, right? Like, like the reason I got into parenting, the reason I got into practice ownership, I'm naive or hopeful or wishful in in thinking that, you know, every year will be better. I'm still, you know, I do have that, that perspective from my parents, you know, that, that life cycle of practice ownership. 
And so I can see, you know, I'm still on, on the rise. And I, I know at some point I'll probably, you know, maybe in my late 40s, I'll feel like, well, this is a good plateau. Let's try to maintain this. And then, you know, you also you always need to start thinking about your exit strategy well in advance. But I'm still, I guess, oh, maybe I'm foolish. I'm still looking to add more adventures and more practices, more services. I, I <laughs> your question really is making me laugh at myself. Yeah, I, I still want more. I've got a lot. I, I, there's still so much more in terms of services and potential here. And I feel like I also owe that to this amazing team that I've built. Like they, they're going to be ready for the next adventure. Maybe not 2023, but 2024. Yeah. So you go back in your life, you go back to 2015. You've just graduated from optometry school. You're, you know, looking at what you're, Futures like you just said earlier, you know, there's not really much of a planning it out in the five year side of things. But the question I have is, is this how you thought it was all going to turn out? It's always a gamble when you look forward and predict. I mean, you're, I feel like you're a patient right now asking me, you know, well, when am I going to get cataract surgery? And I'll tell them, I, I don't have a crystal ball. <laughs> I'll give you a range, two to 10 years. How about that? Right. Um, I, I'm, I'm satisfied and stimulated with the present that where I don't feel like I need to have definitive written down um, plans, you know, having a loose trajectory and being confident enough to make it up as you go. Right. Um, but is this how I thought it would turn out? No, I thought, um, I thought parenthood would be easier. Wow. Uh, it's gotten better. I thought I was going to have um, that business partner that my parents had selected. They cemented things, you know, that was really a, an arranged marriage. So I, I did think I would be doing this with a partner. Um, I'm so glad that now I'm not. Yeah. No, I'd um, say it's, it's more complicated and better and messier than I thought. All of those things. Well, I am going to unfortunately poke a hole in your balloon a little bit. Um, it's going to get harder as you, as your kids get older. Um, <laughs> I, I was, I was at a meeting with, um, my, uh, Julia, my partner to be was with, uh, and her husband was there. And at the time she was quite pregnant. I mean, like she was, uh, I think she was about a month away from delivering and, In there. um, yeah, and then she, I had another colleague, friend of mine, uh, Andrea Knuff, who was there, and she had at the time she had, I believe, a five-year-old child, and I was the, you know, the definitely senior of the group, not just in age, but also my kids at the time were twenty-three, and then there was this guy who was newly married, and his wife was just chomping at the bit to get pregnant, and he was just peppering us with one question or the other about being a parent and. He gets to me and he goes, well, all this other stuff going on. He says, your life must be really easy since your kids are 23. I go, oh, no, mine are a lot harder than theirs are. He goes, what do you mean? They're all grown up. I said, let me ask you this question. When you were a kid, were your problems bigger or smaller than they are right now? And he goes, oh, mine are way bigger. I said, here's the thing. All their problems are your problems, too. And I spent a lot more time on my knees praying now for my kids than I ever did when they were young, um, just to making sure that, you know, they're that their problems are going to be manageable. I mean, I know they will be, but just, gosh, you know, you just don't realize how, how more, how much more challenging they get. It's a lot more fun. Don't get me wrong. My kids, I mm -hmm. love 
being a parent of kids this age because, you know, the conversations you have with them, it's just so much deeper and, and that kind of thing. But yeah. Oh, wow. It's way more challenging. It's way more. I mean, I see that for my parents, you know, here I am, you know, almost 40 and the things I've put my parents through, you know, Oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to excuse this business partner. And Oh, by the way, now I'm going to remodel and oh, we're going to have a second baby while we do all of that. Yep. And you know, my parents were (laughs) gritting their teeth alongside me. Like, what is she doing? And, uh, and yeah, they say you're, you're only as happy as your like least happy or least stable child. I think uh, my, my team leads, my directors at, at the office feel that way now, um, yeah, yeah. you know, with, with their team members. But yeah, I mean, the, the cool thing about being a, a business owner, you know, not just within optometry, is that at least financially, you have some tools at your disposal to set your kids up for success. And there's a lot of smart business, you know, you know, like I'll defer to people like Adam Schmela, you know, who'll tell you, he'll give you points on, on really legacy planning, but, you know, getting them in, getting them on the, you know, getting them on the books so that they can have some earned income and you can start their, you know, their, their Roth IRA, et cetera. So, you know, I hope to at least, you know, give my, my children um, a head start and a platform and, and teach them about investing and saving and charity and all of that, you know, and like my parents did. So I, I am acutely aware of the advantages that have been presented um, to me and, and this launch pad. I mean, it's it's why I'm able to now step away and and kind of take this practice to the next level and, and, and share some wisdom on, on formats such as this and at, at those fun conferences that I'm a, a proponent of attending always, always for networking as a parent, and a business owner, we have some advantages. And if you're not taking advantage of those now, well, you've got about three weeks to do so before the end of the year. Yep. That's right. Uh, you know, and for those of you who aren't listening to Adam Schmela's podcast, 2020 money, you're really missing out, uh, because it's a, he gives away just so much knowledge in that hour you spend with him on a weekly basis. Uh, you'd be crazy not to do it if you're a business owner, if you're, if you're not a business owner, just regardless, because it's amazing. Some of the things he talks about and how much I've learned and, and Julia, Julia, you've talked about it as well. So as we, as we wrap up, um, what is it that you feel like, we really need to make sure we hit before we, we end today. Well, I, I mean, I feel like we've covered it a lot, but you know, don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid of taking on practice ownership on your own. You're not, do, you're not doing it alone. You're going to have an entire team and there's this amazing network now. And my parents didn't have that. They didn't have an IDOC, a clear, uh, you know, a Kleinman. They didn't have, I don't even know. Did they have Vision Source? Maybe towards the tail end yeah, of Vision their Source career. Yeah, Vision Source has been around for about thirty years now. So. Oh, okay, okay, all right. I thank you. Sorry. Um, yeah. You know, That's I know okay. there's no perk. Perk was just getting started in, in SoCal, but there's just so many resources, and it's almost, it's almost like there's too much, right? Like you know, everyone's recommending read these books and listening to these podcasts, and you're like, but I'm just trying to survive and get through family dinner, and you know. I forgot my kid's backpack today. I got to go drop that back off before I see patients. You know, that's my day and get a second optosin before the end of the year. I mean, that's what I'm focused on here, Friday, December 9th. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of resources. It's easy to get overwhelmed, but I'm still a big proponent of practice ownership. I, I love this field. Have fun. I don't know. I think we just we take things so seriously, right? Like, 
Yep. Have fun. If you have fun, your patients will feel it. Your staff will feel it. You know, I. It's easy to say on a good day. I have bad days, but I don't know. We have one. We have one precious life to live. I try to come home every day and tell my kids it was awesome. I don't tell them about the, you know, the negative Yelp review, or you know, so and so quit today. Like you'll rebuild. You'll rebuild. And, and on and on. At the end of the day, you probably realize that there's so much more positive that happened than that one little negative review that it really didn't matter that much anyway. Mm-hmm. Nope. All right, Ted, this was fun. Thank you. It was fun. I really appreciate you being here, Julie. And uh, I'm going to make sure we get a chance for everybody to know how to connect with you. If there's uh, Specifically, is there a way that you would ask them to connect with you? Oh, I'd say email is probably best. Very good. We'll make sure we get that email at the end of this thing. So, uh, Julie, thanks for being with us on the podcast today. Mm-hmm.